I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We are just finishing up this chapter tonight. Uh, to, uh, keep saying tonight, this afternoon. And uh, we've been following Paul as he's been working through uh, the, the problems of mankind, the darkness of the human condition. And uh, as we come to the end of the chapter, uh, we read about uh, the first mention of circumcision in this book, and it may well puzzle you now. We'll come to why he does so in a moment. But let me just read to you. Uh, he's talking to, addressing uh, Jewish believers, and uh, so circumcision is a relevant matter for them. But let's read verse 25 down to 29. Let's hear God's word to us. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man is uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this is a letter that Paul uh, has written it's a letter to a church that he's, he's never been to. Um, he's taking the, the opportunity to spell the gospel out to them. And uh, we're in this part of the discussion where Paul uh, is giving us the bad news about the human condition. And it's necessary to do that in order that uh, we can see clearly uh, the beauty and the brightness of the good news, which he'll, he will get to. And uh, we should understand, of course, that, that no one is excluded from the bad news. This applies to everyone. Everyone uh, is in the midst of the bad news of the human condition. And so he's dealt with the world in chapter 1, uh, in all its unrighteousness, and all its godlessness, and how it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. There's that truth welling up within the hearts that even mankind suppresses. There's the truth of uh, the, the testimony of, of creation, and mankind blots it out. And we suppress the truth in unrighteousness and pursue uh, foolishness of our hearts, the futility of our thinking, and the passions and desires of our hearts. That's the way that human beings work. That's uh, the world generally in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he's been dealing with uh, the Jew particularly. And uh, the problem with the Jew, of course, is that he has all the benefits of the covenant. He's got the law, he's got all the, the heritage, he's, he has the, the name, he's a Jew, and he has all the background and everything that he needs. And yet, for all that he knows what the law says, I, there's a suggestion here that perhaps they're not doing it as they've said they would, that there's hypocrisy. Uh, amongst, uh, amongst the Jews. So whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, there's the bad news. That all men and women 
are unrighteous. So nobody can look at this and say, hmm, very interesting, this Paul, and uh, of course I'm not included, Uh, I'm somebody, somebody different, I'm in a different category altogether. Well, human beings have that habit of pitching themselves into a different category all the time. They're always a special case. But there is no such thing. Paul covers all the bases here. And uh, I hope you're not one of those people that says, I'm a special case. Uh, Don't be fooled. Paul is at pains, I think, to show that there are no exceptions. So last time we saw how the hypocrisy of the the Jews can develop. Um, They claim the many privileges. They've uh, got the history behind them. Yet there is that contradiction. And their lives uh, don't bring glory to God. That though they have all these things, they don't bring glory to God. And Paul uh, really lays it on thick, doesn't he? Uh, he's taken no prisoners here. There is nobody uh, who, who can be missed out. But even as we have dealt with all of that, uh, Paul is still not quite finished uh, you may be weary of uh, Paul's uh, negative view of humanity, but it's really necessary, isn't it? So that we can understand properly where we're coming from and what, how great the gospel is. Uh, Paul has to get to the heart of the problem. And uh, a, a crucial factor that is missed by uh, nominal Jews and today missed by many people who might be classed as nominal Christians. Christians in name only, but are not, don't seem to show any of the fruits of the gospel in their lives. Uh, so th- three things about this passage. Uh, the first thing is, is simply to the, the tendency, to notice the tendency to reduce religion to the doable the tendency to reduce, the, reduce religion to the doable. What I mean is that sinful human beings, the sinful human beings that Paul has been describing have a tendency to define what is acceptable religion for them and, and boil it down to a few doable things. And the fewer the better, because it's easier then, isn't it? And here we see it in this passage. Uh, and this is the first time that Paul, as I said, mentions circumcision in this chapter, which is, of course, the practice of, of cutting off uh, the male foreskin as a sign to the people of God. And uh, in the first century, when Paul is writing here, it's become something of a Jewish identity marker. Uh, there are some other markers like that, like strict Sabbath ob- observance, certain food laws, but But here, Paul only mentions circumcision. And what's clear here from Paul's writing is that in the Jewish mind, faithfulness to God had come down to that simple marker, circumcision. That the men were circumcised. And that they, because they had had that act carried out upon them as a child, therefore, they were in the right. And this is, this is reductionism in the extreme. 
Because, of course, this is something that uh, man would have, uh, a man would have had nothing to do with uh, as a child. It would have been done at eight days, uh, no choice, no decision. But if you had it, you, you consider yourself to be right with God. So, reducing religion to a mere act, reducing acceptance with God to a mere act. In this case, uh, an act performed by someone else on your behalf. Well, this idea of reducing Christ, uh, uh, religion down to a mere act is something that has dogged Christianity down the 2,000 years. The people who believe, there are people who believe that Christianity can be boiled down to just a few things, a few simple things. I attend church sometimes. I attend at Christmas and Easter. Um, Christianity is about doing good to people. Everybody thinks they do good to people. And, uh, and everybody can say that. Everybody can boil Christianity down to these few things. Or even reducing it down to, I've been baptized once. I may have been a child and I didn't know much about it, but I've been baptized, so I must be a Christian. I must be a, 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 in the right with God. Is that Christianity? Is that what biblical Christianity is? Is that what relationship to God is all about? A few tasks that we do? Or a philosophy of life that we can talk about but may not actually do? Or some kind of family background that seems to give us a, a certain set of qualifications? See, all of, all of these things are doable, aren't they? And people are always tempted to think that God will accept them if they do or have one or two of these things in their lives. Now, does Paul agree with that? Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Which physically is impossible, of course. You can't undo a circumcision. But what he means is it becomes meaningless if you break the law. And he's saying that circumcision in itself is, is not enough. It's not enough to be physically circumcised. It's not enough, dare I say it today, to have a baptismal certificate. It's not enough to attend church now and again. It's not enough to articulate a philosophy of life that even promotes kindness to people. That's not enough. That's not going to save anybody. So what's God after? Well, that brings us to our second point. God is after the heart. To get to the, uh, this truth, we need to understand some of the background to circumcision. Circumcision, of course, was something that was introduced in Genesis chapter 17. Remember, uh, Abraham uh, uh, was given this uh, instruction to, to baptize every male child of eight days or older in his household. And he had a big household at uh, this time. Everybody should be circumcised. Now, why? Because... It would be an enduring sign of God's covenant of grace with Abraham and his offspring. What did the, the covenant involve? Well, it involved God giving promises to Abraham, starting, and it began before Genesis 17, Genesis 12, that uh, he would have offspring. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you can look it up. Uh, that Abraham would have offspring, he would have children. 
that there would be a land for his offspring, and that his offspring would be a blessing to the, the nations. And that promise is repeated in chapter 15, and then again in chapter 17, and this time with a sign given, the sign of circumcision. This is a sign of God's promises. And all Abraham had to do in this covenant was to trust God's promise and do as he was commanded. And have everybody in his house, every man in his household circumcised eight days or older. What's important to note is that Abraham was called to a living faith in God, not an intellectual faith, which stayed in his head as an idea. Christianity is not just an idea. It had to be a living faith. A faith which moved him and motivated him into active conscious obedience and service towards God. You can always tell when somebody's got living faith. They're always busy about kingdom work and serving people. And that's what this covenant arrangement would be like. The sign, circumcision was added later. Isn't it it interesting? Faith comes first. A living faith comes first. But then circumcision comes later. And what was primary, and what it always is primary, is living faith in the God who has given all the promises. The sign comes second. But for the Jews that Paul is addressing here, they had flipped this on their head. The sign was everything. Circumcision was everything. But the living faith, the the conscious trust of his promises and obedience to the commands was secondary. And this is a, a perversion of God's covenant of grace. You see, the covenant of God... Even in the Old Testament, the covenant of grace always involved the engagement of the person at the heart's level. You see, there are two ways to respond to an instruction or a command. Supposing you had arrived early this morning in the park, and we have to set everything up and put up a gazebo and tables and chairs and stuff like that. Supposing you arrived early this morning and I said to you, you could, help, you could help out with that setup. And you could either groan inside, make some excuse, and maybe eventually say, oh, all right then, and do your bare minimum that you can get away with and do it reluctantly. Or you can say, yep, yeah, I can do that. I love my brother. My brother's asked me to help, and I'm right in there. I want to do it. And I could make things better. I could really help here. Two different attitudes. One is reluctant but gets it done. And one is really happy and gets it done. One is performing a dry, empty duty. Not from the heart. And the other is doing so trusting and loving his, friend, his or her friends. Brothers and sisters. Loving them. Sharing a common hope. Common future. And it's the same with God. You can either treat God's commands as burdensome obligations that you don't really care about, or you can respond to them out of love and trust 
with an eye to the future goal that he promises. That's what God is looking for. The heart response. And that's what Paul, I think, is getting at in verse 25. That um, there's no point in having the sign of the covenant if you don't enter into the living faith of the covenant. And therefore, set about obeying God's commandments out of love, trust, and, and hope. You might as well be uncircumcised. You might as well be unbaptized, if such a thing were possible. You might as well be a Gentile. So it's not hard to see, I think, where Paul is going with this, with this argument. And so you see in verse 28, Paul, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwards or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirits, not by the letter. Relationship to God is not a matter of outward conformity to aspects of the law like circumcision. It's not a matter of what's observable on the outside, your attendance, your verbal profession, your baptism and so on. It's about the inner commitment of devotion and love towards God which is, is committed to his plans and purposes. Now is, is that a new idea? It comes about in the New Testament, uh, different from the Old. You know, some people think that. Some people think that uh, Old Testament religion is one thing and New Testament religion is another. Well, that's totally false. And let me show you why. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Uh, incidentally, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you read through it, I, I, I think there's hardly a chapter, maybe one or two, there's hardly a chapter that doesn't speak about the heart of the Israelites. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It was never God's intention merely to give a code of conduct book. You know, kind of like these, those of you in industry and I used to work in a design office and you had these uh, books of procedures on the, on the shelves and nobody ever looked at them. <laughs> and some people in Christ, you know, think of Christianity like that. They think of God's word like that. A book of instructions that you keep on the shelf and you never look at. But God intended it to be on the heart. If you go forward in Deuteronomy into chapter 10... You'll read this. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And here comes a command. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. So it's not enough just to have a physical circumcision. God is saying to every single one of them, men and women, Circumcise your hearts. And don't be stubborn. God wants a heart-to-heart relationship with his people. And And the external circumcision was supposed to be representative of what is true of the heart. 
And it's interesting that the alternative to circumcising your heart and giving yourself wholeheartedly in devotion to God is stubbornness. Stubbornness. Digging your heels in. Having a stiff neck. Refusing to do the things that God requires of you. Which shows us, of course, the, 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 uh, the basic problem of the human condition. Stubbornness is, a, is the dogged determination not to change attitude in spite of the benefits to the contrary. So while God lays out all the benefits of being in relationship to God, of doing all that he commands, there is a stubbornness in the human heart, which for all the public profession comes from a deeper belief that man or woman knows better than God. That's the problem with dogs, Christianity. Men and women still believe that they, they know better than God. So there is a need for people's hearts to be circumcised in order that they use the law properly. Now, the, the law itself cannot change the heart, but a circumcised heart can use the law. That's why the law always follows after the gospel, by the way. We'll come back to that some other day. But the problem is the sinfulness of the stubborn human heart. So how is this problem to be solved? Well, continue on in Deuteronomy. Get to chapter 30. And the Lord looks forward to entering into the promised land, which is about to happen. And Moses writes this interesting thing. And he's speaking to the Israelites. And he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So God has given the law, setting out what he requires of his people. But the law alone is not sufficient to, to make a righteous, covenantally faithful people. Because their hearts need to be changed also. And therefore, God does something about that as well. He circumcises the hearts. Which brings us to our final point. That the Holy Spirit does what the law cannot do. Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. The circumcision that is necessary can now happen by the Spirit, which overcomes the human heart that always is saying, I know better. But the Holy Spirit comes and changes lives and changes you from the inside out. The written law cannot do it. A moral code cannot do it. Religious observance cannot do it. Only God can do what is necessary to change a heart. And so Paul will have a great deal more to say about that as when he comes to speak about the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life when we get to chapter 8. But I need to stress to you that just the absolute vital necessity that the Holy Spirit does a life-changing work in your heart and my heart because it reminds us That that truth reminds us of something that Jesus said. 
Remember that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in the middle of the night. And uh, Nicodemus is uh, uh, the top guy. You know, he's, he's the teacher of Israel, the whole country. <laughs> you know, he's the guy at the top, teaching everybody else. And Jesus comes to him and he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, what does that mean? Do I have to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? You shouldn't be surprised that I say this, says Jesus. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a sovereign, gracious work of the Spirit to bring new life to a man or woman, boy or girl. God has to come, as it were, and invade your life and change it from the inside out. And in doing so, circumcise the heart. And he changes, you know, hearts that are uh, made of stone, they're cold, foolish, selfish hearts. And he makes them into hearts of flesh, warm, full of faith in God, loving towards God, desiring to be faithful. And he changes your heart from being stubborn to being compliant with God's will. He makes faith, love, and hope possible. The Holy Spirit does his work. Friends, I need to just ask you today, as we finish, has that happened to you? Has the Holy Spirit turned you inside out? Has he given you a new heart? I'm not asking you, are you a morally upright, respectable person in the eyes of others? I'm not even asking you if you come to church regularly, or even that you're a member of a church. That's really irrelevant. I'm asking you whether you've been born again. Has the Spirit of God come into your life and changed you and removed all your stubbornness? See, only God can change your heart. And without that change, you're lost today for all your outward appearances. If you think your answer is no, you're not born of the Spirit of God, then all I can say to you is, Cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to me, he says to you, he says to me, come to me and I'll, oh you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will do the very things that are necessary to save you. Call out to Jesus Christ in faith. Hate your sin, hate your sinfulness. Turn to him in prayer. Turn away from your sin. Ask Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for sins, now to give you a new life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this transformation that happens and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who circumcises hearts. And we pray that all of us here today would know what that circumcision of the heart is and that we would find ourselves drawn to Christ in love and faith and hope. Oh Lord, give us that faith. Give us faith to believe in the promises of God. Help us to overcome our stubbornness and our sinfulness and discover the joy of new life in Jesus Christ. Amen.